The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. In John chapter 4, we began last week looking, laying the foundation for this incredible story that we're so familiar with if you have been in church for any long period of time of this woman at the well. That's the way we know it because the woman is not named. So we just call her the woman at the well. And we looked last week at those first six verses of chapter four that really set up the conversation that we're gonna look at today. Today we're looking at verses seven through 30, which is a mouthful, it's a whole lot. We're only gonna skim the surface, but we're gonna walk through it. And I'm gonna let you see kind of how this conversation is developing and, and what's being thrown around there and how Jesus is addressing some of these key heart issues in that. We're gonna have some reflection from that as well. Um, and then the last part of it, we're gonna save for next week, which is really the disciples' reaction to some of these things and then the reaction of the community that the woman goes back and gives witness to. Now, what we've seen thus far, and we kind of highlighted this last week, is Jesus has been progressively working through these different areas of Israel. And that's pretty fascinating because John is creating this parallel for us. We saw uh, towards the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus was in Jerusalem. That's where he cleansed the temple. That's where he has the conversation with Nicodemus. And then it says from there, he went to the Judean wilderness and that's where he's baptizing with John. And um, that's where the whole conversation between John and his disciples were. Then after that, Jesus was compelled. He tells his disciples, I, we have to go to Samaria. Now, if that sounds familiar, that progression is because in Acts 1.8, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, after his resurrection and at his ascension, he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. And then what is the progression? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so Jesus had already set the example for them. So a lot of what we understand from John's gospel is following Jesus literally means following Jesus. It means following the model that he set for us, following the pattern that he set for us. He is our rabbi, we are the disciples. And so life is very complex, but yet at the same time, it's simple in the sense of, we follow Jesus through life. We follow him by knowing what his word says. We follow him by yielding to his spirit that has been imparted to us at salvation. So if we are followers of Christ and we have received this great salvation from the Lord, then we are partakers in the spirit of God. And if we are partakers of the spirit of God, then the spirit of God is the seal of salvation on us. And he brings us, leads us into all wisdom. And so we understand what it means to be like Christ, what it means to follow him in whatever situation or scenario we find ourselves in. So last week, he find, we, we highlighted where he's leaving the Judean wilderness and now he's going to Samaria. And he talks about I have to go to Samaria. Now, what we highlighted as well is that he didn't have to go to Samaria. He could have went a different direction. Matter of fact, there were three different options and two of them did not go through Samaria. Only one of them went smack dab through the middle of Samaria. And, and if we understand where Jesus is, where John would have been baptizing and Jesus was close by, he was over close to the Jordan River, close to the Dead Sea. He was way closer to one of those other routes that would have taken him up the Eastern side of the Jordan River to Galilee, rather than him having to go from where he was south 
and then west and then back up north to go to Samaria. So when he said, I have to go to Samaria, and the scripture tells us, it's not telling us that he had to go there, he had no option. He said it in a way that I've gotta do this. It's kind of like when you say something like, man, I've gotta go see that concert. I've gotta go to that game, that basketball game, that football game. You're not saying that you have no choice. You're saying, I've got to do this because I'm compelled. I've got to do this because I want to do this. I've got to do this because it is incumbent upon me to do this at this time because I don't want to miss this. That's more of the sentiment that we have there when Jesus says we have to go to Samaria. Okay, So he was compelled to do that. So even though it's way out of his way, he goes to Samaria. Now, the story kept going, and what we looked at was those first six verses kind of laid out for us. He's journeying with them. We talked about the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, how they hated each other all the way back to the um, Assyrian exile, and they took a lot of people out of that area that Samaria was in. The Samaritans, the ones that we know as Samaritans now, were left behind. Other people groups that had been defeated by the, the Assyrians had been brought in. They intermarried with those groups, so they lost a lot of their heritage. The main thing was that the Jews didn't like was they accepted their gods. So they brought all these worship of the gods of these other nations, these other groups of people into the worship of Yahweh. So they had like this hybrid worship. Well, when the Jews came back out of their exile and they began building the temple, the Samaritans wanted to help. They were like, yes, we're rebuilding our temple. And they were like, uh-uh, not our temple, our temple. We don't want your dirty money. And this made the Samaritans really mad, so they built their own temple. Uh, well, later on, the Jews got so mad, they went and burned their temple. And so this is what had created the animosity. So Jews did not like Samaritans, Samaritans did not like Jews. We have fond thoughts of Samaritans, right? We even have a law, the Good Samaritan Law, because we think of Samaritans in a very positive light. They did not in that day. It was very, very negative. And a matter of fact, Jews would not go through Samaria, not just because they didn't like them, not just because they thought they were unclean. They didn't go through there because they feared for their life. Uh, oftentimes you would be detained. Oftentimes you would be charged way more for food and water and resources. Oftentimes you would be robbed going down there if you were found to be a Jew traveling through Samaria. And so when Jesus says, we've got to go to Samaria, this is something I just got to do. The disciples are probably going, what in the world is this guy thinking? And so you see them almost not understanding this. And so Jesus begins this journey through Samaria. The disciples are thinking, man, we got to get through here as fast as we can. And Jesus gets smack dab in the middle of Samaria to this place called Sychar. And when he gets to Sychar, Jesus is just like walking around. He's like, oh, I'm so tired. Guys, I don't think I can go to another step. I think I'm going to have to rest right here at this well and just sit down a while. And they're going, what? What are you talking about? We're in the middle of Samaria. We don't have time to stop. We've got to get out of this place. We're going to Galilee. We're going to where our people are. We're getting out of this place. We've got to keep walking. Jesus, come on. Just suck it up and deal with it, and let's just keep walking. And I can't. I've, I've got to stop. I've got to stay here. And so that brings us to where we are. And the question I want to start with is this. Can anything really significant ever happen at a well in the middle of nowhere where only weary travelers sit down to grab a drink of water on their journeys. Now, of course, if you know this story, you answer, of course, something significant can happen, but that's only because you know the story. You don't know the story, you would say, absolutely not, nothing significant would ever happen. And the reason I would argue that you would have that point of view is because the well story here, the well is much like our grocery stores today. 
Okay. The well was a place you went to get the necessities that you needed for life. So they went to get water that they could drink and they could cook with and they could bathe with and all those necessities of life. That's why they went every day. It's why we go to the grocery store. We've got to go get food. We've got to go get things to wash ourselves with. We've got to go get deodorant. We go to that place because we are picking up items that are necessities so that we can go back to our lives. And I promise you, maybe one spiritual person in here excluded, but when you go into Publix or Walmart or wherever, you don't walk in that door going, God could show up in this place. I mean, you just never know. Walking down aisle three, close to the peanut butter, God could show up in this place. You never go in there expecting that God's gonna show up. You do not do it. You do not go in there and expect I'm going to have a God moment in this place. You go in there and think, I'm going to get what I need, and I'm going to get back to my life. You expect God to show up in significant places where it is set apart for those significant encounters, like Sundays or Wednesdays or Sunday nights or camp or a retreat or a Bible study or small group, because we think of God showing up when we intend on him showing up. But what we find in Scripture is we should probably anticipate that God will not show up when we anticipate him to show up, that he always shows up in the weirdest occasions in the most mundane places. Think about where he showed up to call Moses to free his people. Moses just walking around a wilderness watching some animals. You know, when he calls um, this woman and speaks to her, they're at a well. I mean, over and over again, you can look in Scripture and just see Paul, a great example. Paul's just from point A to point B riding his horse, and God just knocks him off of it and says, hey, you're going to be a follower of mine. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Yes, sir. Paul did not expect to have an encounter with God in between those two points that he was traveling. But that's when God shows up the most. And my question to you is this. Do you expect God to show up in your life? Do you expect him to show up in mundane places? Do you expect him to show up? at wells, at grocery stores, at laundromats, because that, my friends, is where Scripture keeps pointing to that you're most likely to have this encounter with the divine. And so we see this here. It's being set up for us. Jesus is tired. He sits down at the well. He's thirsty, famished. And then all of a sudden, the disciples leave. They're thinking, oh, goodness. I cannot believe he's doing this to us. What do you need? Jesus, subway, pizza? What do you, what do you need? You just need, okay, we're going to go into town and get it, okay? Because we need to get out of this place as quick as we can. We're going to go in there. You just stay right here. We're going to go get that, okay? So they go into town. They're going to get whatever. And then after they leave, it enters into our text for the day. But before we move into that, I want you to see the contrast between the way John the Baptist has presented Jesus as this Messiah and the way that he's presented as we go into this story. John has said that he is the preeminent one. He is the one that is before. He is the one that's after. He's, he's all powerful. And he's the one that turned water into wine. He's the one that cleared the temple. And then all of a sudden, our passage, how is Jesus presented? Tired and weary. I mean, it's not the one you think of as being preeminent. It's not the one that you think of that has lived for all eternity and will live into eternity. The one who always has been, the one who always will be. How in the world is he tired and weary? It's a beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity, and it's a beautiful picture of Jesus being very aware of himself, of what he's feeling. And I think many times we miss that. Many times... We're not driven by what we feel. We ignore what we feel, and we keep doing what we want to do. Jesus seems to be so in touch with himself that he knows 
it's time to rest. It's time to stop. It's time to sit for a little while. And Jesus, apparently not fearful of where he is or his surrounding or his circumstances, sits down at this well. Now, let's look at our text for today. What I want to do is read the whole thing through, and then we will walk through it. Now, obviously, when we walk through it, it's going to be quick. Like, there's a lot of text here, a lot of verses, and there's a lot of things that we could dive deep into that we're not going to have the ability to do today. So there are going to be a few things that I'm going to highlight as we move through it and I think bring more application to us uh, in our life today. So let's begin in verse 7. A woman <clears throat> from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. That's what I was telling you. They're gone. They're going to see what they can do. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us these little parentheticals to explain, probably to his first century readers that were not Jewish, some of the dialogue or some of the nuances to what's happening here. So he explains to them right there, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Long pause. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Do you ever see how that, like she's sitting there looking at it. She don't know how to respond. What am I going to say? Oh, I perceive you are a prophet. And then you do what you would, anybody would do when they are exposed in a conversation like that. You change the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. John is letting us know because he's already referred to Jesus as Christ earlier. When he comes... He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I 
who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So John does this amazing job of demonstrating the love of God through how Jesus is interacting with these first few personalities through the gospel of John. First, we see him in that encounter with Nicodemus, and it's in the cover of darkness. Nicodemus is the one who's from the religious crowd, and he doesn't really want to be identified with Jesus out in the public yet. So he's very curious about, could this be the Messiah? I mean, he's done amazing things. He teaches amazing things. And so Jesus has this encounter with him. The next encounter that we have is Jesus with with this woman, this nameless woman at a well. But we do know this about her. In contrast to Nicodemus, what we find is she's nothing like him. He was an insider. She's an outsider. He was a righteous man. This lady comes with a huge burden of loneliness, of guilt, of failed relationships, just a string of them. And notice how Jesus touches a spiritual nerve in both of these. For Nicodemus, he demonstrates the inadequacy or the emptiness of trying to pursue your own self-righteousness, of trying to be good enough for God, of trying to fulfill the law yourself, and that you can't do it. You'll never enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again, Nicodemus. And then our passage here today, we see Jesus open up the alienation that this woman from Samaria found at this well is going through and what she's been feeling. He exposes the fact that she is caught in a maze of tangled relationship. And each one leaves her thirsty for another one that this one might fulfill me. This might be the one. This might bring significance to me. This might be the one that brings meaning. This might be the man who will truly love me, who will love me for who I am. And she has a string of these, and every one of them leaves her disappointed and disillusioned. It's amazing how he speaks to both of these people very differently, yet very much the same, because he speaks to them in a very personal way. He speaks to them in a very appropriate way. See, Jesus never has some canned approach in how he, he talks to people about who he is, about the gospel, about what he's come to do. He's very appropriate to each person. I grew up in a church where we had uh, evangelism training and we had a program called EE that I went through and it's like weeks and weeks and weeks and you memorize all these scriptures and you memorize literally a script. When you go to the door, you knock on the door, you start with these questions, these questions, however they answer it, leads you to column A, column A, you go through here and you quote these verses. If they say anything like this, no, 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 you go over to column D and you start right there and you come down and you just had this approach where no matter what they said, you could kind of keep coming back around to those things. Now, it sounds like I'm making fun of it. I'm not. It's actually a really great program because it helps you understand the flow of, of how salvation happens and how it's, it's so clearly drawn out for us in scripture. You memorize the scripture. You know how to walk people through that picture of how salvation is imparted and the truth of what salvation is in scripture. The negative part of it is that you begin to think that is sharing my faith and that's all that sharing faith is. And then even worse than that, you begin to think that Tuesday nights are for sharing your faith. 
and all the rest of the nights are yours, but Tuesday night is sharing your faith and you do it through this script. And a lot of people did begin to see it that way. For you, it may have been the faith program, whatever it is that your denomination may have had. Uh, they, they're great programs in the sense of understanding and memorizing things and, and being having a boldness, maybe even a confidence to walk out. But here's the thing, if you miss the spirit of God in that, you've missed what salvation is all about. It's, you're not gonna convince anyone into the kingdom of God by quoting a bunch of scriptures to them. If that worked, there would be a whole bunch of saved people out there because scriptures have been quoted at people for years and years and years. It takes the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit just wants to use you being quiet, just sitting there with that person and feeling some of the pain that they're walking through. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will use you in a sense of sharing that you walk through the same tragedy that they're walking through and that even though you may not know the special nuances to their crisis that you've walked through that and you know those questions that they're asking and you know the hurt that they're feeling and you know the darkness that looms in those situations. Sometimes it is quoting scripture. Sometimes it's laughing with someone. Sometimes it's spending years with them. Sometimes it's spending moments with them. I mean, it never looks the same because we aren't the same. And so that's why we have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us and be sensitive and yielding to the Spirit and saying, Spirit, what would you have for me to do today? And understanding the things that you feel and the journey where life takes you is not by accident. It is the Spirit of God allowing us to take those moments in life and making them God moments. Come back to that in just a minute. Notice here that Jesus starts with what they need and then he deals with them where they are. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Hey, if you knew who it was that asked you for, you would ask me for water, living water, and I would give it to you. He starts with what they need, and then he deals with where they are. You're a teacher of the law of Israel, and you don't know these things? It's foreign to you? You're right when you say that you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. Whew. Okay, here's what you need. Here's where you are. Now, I think a lot of times in evangelism, we, we look the other way around, don't we? We start with, here's where you are, and that's what you need. But the reason that sometimes is not the best approach is because it almost creates that you have to work your way out of it. That to get to that, I got to fix this. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, this is what you need, and you need it right now. You need it in the midst of this situation. You need it right. What situation? There's nothing wrong with me. Here's your situation. Oh, that hurt. Why did you bring that out? Why are you showing me that? Why are you making that public? Have you ever seen one of those children's puzzles like this right here? If you got the highlights when you were growing up, your mom ordered those for you, and you love looking for... Uh, Doofus and Doremus or whatever their names were, the two twin brothers. One of them was good, one of them was bad. One of them cleaned his room, one of them didn't, you know. Uh, I can't remember exactly what their names were. But then you'd always have a picture like this, and it was always, what's wrong with this picture? Y'all remember those? And you'd look in the fire truck, you know, you're trying to find it, and you're like, that's a donut. That's not a tire for the fire truck. That's not supposed to be there. And so you go through the whole picture, and it tells you how many things you should find, and you work your way through that whole picture, and you identify those things. Well, it's almost like John right here is doing that same thing. He paints this picture. He just tells you kind of some things that are going on. And immediately, if you were in the first century, you were like, there's something wrong with this picture. 
Number one, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria. Number two, Jesus stops at this well. The disciples leave him, and he starts talking to a woman. You don't talk to women in first century context. You don't ever talk to them in public. Number two, he's not only talking to a woman, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Number three, he's not just talking to a Samaritan woman. He's talking to a Samaritan woman with some severe character issues. You almost hear in the disciples' question when they come back, what does he want from her, that they're almost exactly what you think they're thinking is, there's only one thing that people want from women like that. What, surely Jesus doesn't want those things. What, what, what's he want from her? Why is he talking to her? They, they don't understand it. They can't comprehend it. They're just thinking, how do we get out of here? And here's Jesus building relationships with the seedy people in this community, Okay. And that's where they're seeing it. And so there's something wrong with this picture because Jesus is a holy man and holy men don't talk to women in public. And certainly this woman being a Samaritan woman and Jesus being a holy man who's a Jew, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And then to compound both of those issues, her character flaws or her perceived character flaws become great issues there. So when you put all of that together, John has painted for us a picture before this conversation really even gets into it of things that we would never, ever expect. It's kind of like when you go to the well, you don't expect these things to happen. When you go to Walmart, when you, you don't expect God to show up in those places. John sets up a scenario that you would never, ever expect God to show up in. And exactly what happens is God shows up in the person of Jesus. Jesus engages this lady in conversation. And we'll see more of this in a minute. But the content of their conversation is absolutely fascinating. Jesus will again talk about things that the listener, the person that he's talking to, doesn't understand. The same thing happened with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can I enter into my mother's womb a second time and, and be born a second time? And he's like, no, Nicodemus, you're thinking only in the physical. I'm talking from the spiritual. For this woman, if you knew who asked you for water, you would ask him for water, living water, and he would give it to you. Where, where is your bucket? Where are you going to get this living water from? She's thinking only physical. He's talking spiritual. In a minute, next week, we're going to look more at those verses at the end. And, and the disciples come back and they're like, um, Jesus is ready to go. What, what happened to you? And he says, I, I don't need any food. I've already ate. Who gave him sandwiches? He's like, no, I, I don't eat. I'm not talking about physical food. I'm talking about spiritual food. So they don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying. John keeps presenting those situations over and over again where Jesus is talking. He uses physical terms, but he uses them in a way that they should pick up on that he's not talking about the physical, but all they can think is physical. Why? Because that's their reality and that's our reality. It's why it's hard for us to comprehend eternity. It's why it's hard for us when we lose a loved one to believe that God somehow is good in that because all we know is life here. And that person was a significant part of our life here and that person is gone. And so with our physical eyes, we don't understand. We can't, and we read the verses over and over again, but still our heart hurts so bad. Even though we may believe in eternity, we may believe that they're in a better place. It's so like we are stuck in this physical that we can't understand or can't conceive of so many of the promises of scripture because they are beyond us. They're beyond 
this world, this physical world. And so we get drawn in the same way. So many of these encounters that Jesus have with people, that they're drawn into it, that they only can think of the physical. And so many times in our situations, that's exactly what happens to us. It's what happens to the disciples here. We'll get to that again in a moment because I think there's something very applicable from the disciples' perspective of the situation and Jesus. But before we get to that, let's look at this. He's talking at that heavenly level. They are listening at the earthly level. But because the one God created both heaven and earth, and because the whole point of Jesus coming to earth was that heaven, the life of heaven was gonna come to dead earth to resurrect and bring life back to God's people, God's creation, then all of a sudden we see these encounters of heaven and earth, and heaven is never understood by earth. People of earth don't understand what Jesus is saying because he's the only, like John just said, he's the only one who's been to heaven. He's the only one that's seen God. He's the only one that comes from him. He's the only one that understands it. And so as he begins to try and explain these things, people just struggle over and over again. I don't understand that. So with that being the context, let's look at these verse by verse. And some of them we're gonna move kind of quickly through, but let's watch this conversation develop because I bet you there are subtle nuances to this conversation that you never paid attention to before. Watch this, verse seven, a woman from Samaria, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now we already know from the text that this is the middle of the day. So John is telling us in the middle of a day, this woman from Samaria is coming to draw water and Jesus is there. Okay, he's setting up this scenario of saying, this woman is not of good character. That's why she's coming in the middle of the day and not in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening when all the rest of the women would come and they would come together and they would talk about life and talk about their families and catch up on what was happening around the world. They would have these conversations as they would go and gather their water and then walk back. This lady was obviously isolated from those communities. She was obviously not welcome in those groups of women. Wonder why, right? Probably because she didn't want to be the point of speculation. She didn't want to want, be the one that everybody's pointing the finger at. She didn't want to hear those whispers. She didn't want to feel those shuns, those cold shoulders that are turned towards her. And so she didn't want to have any part of that. She knows that she's made mistakes. She knows that she's hurt people. She knows there's consequences of those. So she just goes by herself in the heat of the day, the hottest part of the day to go get water, to bring it back and forth from where she lives. And that tells you a lot about what she's lived through. And here Jesus comes into this situation and he begins this conversation with this lady. Look at verse nine. Verse eight just gives us the parenthetical of his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse seven, the woman, Jesus says to the woman, opens up that conversation, give me a drink. Now look at how she responds. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria. So she lays that out there. Do you see how she's very intentional about that? How is it that not just you would ask this of me? How is it you, a Jew, is asking a drink from me, a Samaritan? Because here's the thing. Jews thought not only that Samaritans were unclean, but all of their utensils were unclean. A Jew would never ask to eat or drink from anything that a Samaritan had made or owned. 
you would never drink out of a container of vessel that belonged to a Samaritan. So this lady is blown away like, oh yeah, you're here. You don't have anything. Now you need me. Now you need something. Now I'm coming to your rescue. And then all of a sudden Jesus turns the table on him or on her. Look at what he says in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that sounds a little bit arrogant, right? I mean, ladies, I mean, how, how do you like that line? If you knew the gift of God that was talking to you right now, <laughs> I mean, this just doesn't sound like, but here's the context, none of you are Jesus. Right? And none of us can live up to what Jesus is about to present to this person. And so he's revealing some things to her. And this is fascinating. Don't miss this. He's revealing things to her that apparently, at least to this point, he hasn't even said to his disciples. He's revealing things to her that she seems to be, as far as John's gospel unfolding, she's the first person that he's telling these things to. Gift of God. Sounds arrogant, but let me just say this. What a beautiful promise. A gift of God. That Jesus is literally a gift that the Father has given. Why? Because heaven has come to touch earth. And in this moment, this lady doesn't realize it, but God is visiting her at this well. And again, don't forget that John is so intentional by giving us details. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the cover of night because he was embarrassed to be seen with Jesus because it might cost him his reputation. It might hurt him. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh, going to Samaria and in broad daylight begins a conversation with this woman who has just been used and abused in her life. The difference of how Nicodemus approaches Jesus and how Jesus approaches this Samaritan woman with questionable character, what a beautiful picture of the gift of God. Because you know what? If you know what salvation is, that same thing happened to you. You were far away. And God came to you in a moment and said, I don't care who sees me because I want you to know I love you. I love you just the way you are but I love you way too much to leave you that way. And I wanna bring you out of your depression. I wanna bring you out of your difficulty and your circumstances. I wanna bring you out of your endless pursuits of trying to find meaning and purpose in the things of this world and the physical. And I want you to find it in the place you were meant to find it, that is the spiritual. What a beautiful picture of how God is a gift to us and how he comes in broad daylight. He's not ashamed of who we've been. He's not ashamed even of the things that we've done. He's not ashamed to be associated with us just because we've done those things. No, God says, I know you, I love you, and I accept you the way you are, and I want to bring you along from that and take you into true meaning and purpose in life. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's getting a little proud here because she's going back to history. Now she knows the Jews hate them, but what she's saying here is, don't forget we play a part of your history as well. Don't forget it was Jacob, one of the patriarchs who dug this well. This is his land. He gave it to Joseph, his favorite child, and Joseph's children inherited it. And this is that land. That's where we are. That's our well. He fed his animals and drank from it, and we drank from it. Don't forget that, buddy. It's basically what she's saying there, okay? Jesus doesn't argue with any of that. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus says something that she can't really argue with. She keeps coming back to that well every day. She drinks from that well, she gets thirsty again. She keeps coming back. So Jesus is bringing her along in this conversation. Notice the phrase there, living water. Now that's different. They've been talking about water up to this point and Jesus says no living water. Again and again in the gospel, Jesus talks in a way that people tend to misunderstand. They should have picked up on the fact that he was talking about something different than water because he calls it living water. He's talking again at the heavenly level, they are listening at the earthly level. So when Jesus says that she should ask for a drink, she thinks of it in a literal sense. But the word living should have been her clue that he's talking about something different. Now, in the first century context, the word living water was not new. Matter of fact, they used it in everyday terms. The difference in living water and water was this, living water moved. So they would call living water like a river. Stagnant water did move. Pond water, you know, water in a cistern, water in a well, that doesn't move. It's just sitting down there, it's stagnant, okay? Living water, why do they call it living water? Here's why. Living water was something that as much as you drank, you never put a dent in it. You know, like when you drink from a river, you don't see it go, Oof. you know, because there's water coming down from the, and it just replenishes it. When you wash your clothes in a river, you don't sit there and go, it's polluted now, it's got dirty stuff. No, why? Because the water literally carried your dirtiness away. There was fresh, clean water that came down and replaced the water where you just washed your clothes. That's why they called it living water because it kept coming. It came from somewhere, it's going somewhere, it replenishes itself, it never runs dry in the sense of a healthy river. That's why they called it living water. So Jesus, when he uses this term, again, she's thinking physical, he's thinking spiritual. Now here's what's powerful. As you get into, I think it's in chapter seven of John, Jesus uses this same analogy again. He talks about living waters coming up from within the soul like he does towards the end of this conversation. And he identifies what he means by that. He says that the living waters inside of you that are welling up, that become a spring of living water is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, think about that. The Holy Spirit never runs dry, does he? It's not like the Holy Spirit you know, you need some wisdom and you ask him and he's like, oh, I'm all out of answers today. Come back tomorrow. No, he, he, 
the wisdom never ends. You, you, you can't come to the end of it. You can't run dry of the wisdom of the power of the Holy Spirit, the direction, the counsel of the Holy Spirit. You never run dry. And the Spirit, Jesus teaches us later that the Spirit is the confirmation of salvation in us. It is the Spirit that's imparted to us. The Spirit in us is proof for us that we know that we're saved. And the Spirit becomes the thing that sustains us from the inside. It's spiritual. It's not physical. Again, keep that in mind because this becomes very powerful as this conversation develops. Now, in verse 15, he continues on. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, don't miss the importance of that last part. Yes, surely, that'd be great that I was not thirsty again. But if anything can keep me from reliving the shame and guilt that I feel every time, that I have to walk to this place in the middle of the day, give it to me. Anything that can take away the, the, the isolation and rejection that I feel, anything that can take away the thoughts that haunt me as I walk by myself in the heat of the day to this well and back again, if anything can take that away, please let me drink of that because I'm tired of living through this and thinking through this day after day after day. And so at this point, Jesus stops. And he says to her, very straightforward, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. Now, it seems the way this sentence is constructed is that she is with another woman's husband because the one you're with is not your husband, it's someone else's husband. And then you can feel they've had this dialogue. She's kind of held Jacob out there. She's kind of talked about this thing. And all of a sudden Jesus drops that out there and you just know there's like this dead silence for a moment. You know, it's like that moment where you fight back or what am I gonna come back with? And so she does what any of us would do. Um, I perceive you are a prophet. And then what do you do? Change the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, is she just changing the subject because she's avoiding it? No, I want you to watch how this conversation is developing. Jesus has just called her out. He's just called her out for sin. And here is what she's doing. She's saying, but who really gets to determine what sin is? Matter of fact, your fathers say we should worship on that mountain. Our fathers say, we should worship on this mountain. What she's pointing at is this, the inconsistency of religion, religion and religiosity. You know, we do the same thing today, right? The Catholics say you have to say five Hail Marys and you have to confess your sins to a priest and you have to whatever. And then the Baptists, all you gotta do is walk forward and, you know, VBS and take the clown by the hand and he leads you through the happy hops to heaven and, you know, or, you know, Presbyterian, you just have to be christened as a baby or whatever it may be. So this guy says we worship this way. This guy says we worship that way. That religion says we worship this way. 
There's no way all of them can be true. Therefore, religion can't be trusted. And so you're judging me based on your religion of what your religion says is right and wrong. Do you see where she's going with this? Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So right there, Jesus is changing something. He's saying, you know what? You're accustomed to thinking of God in space. Another word, you think of God being worshiped in that mountain, on that building, in that temple. And the Jews worship God in that building, on that mountain, in that temple. And maybe some other gods worship their gods over in some other country, and they worship in that temple, on that mountain. And we tend to think of that, don't we? We tend to think God shows up in places. He shows up in places that are holy. And sometimes we think about this place. This is holy because this is church, and we come to a place. We come to a building to hear the word of God taught. But Jesus is trying to explain that is the physical, and God is not confined by the physical. God is spiritual. And a day is coming. Look at what he says next. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father not in space, but in time, spirit, and in truth. Why? For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's looking for people who will worship him, not because they think this is a mountain that we worship on and it's special and it's holy and my fathers did this and my father's fathers did this. And we have the, no, it's not that. True worshipers are looking after the heart of the father. They are seeking the father's heart. They want to know what he knows. They want to be close to him. Look at what it says in verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, notice there's no building. They must worship him not in a mountain, not in a temple. They must worship him in spirit and in truth. So the spirit is the key. The spirit is what Jesus later after the resurrection imparts to his disciples. At salvation, the spirit is imparted to us so that we may know, so that we may understand things that are beyond us because left to ourselves, this is all we understand. This is our temporal existence, and this is as far as we can think and understand and comprehend. And the Spirit of God allows us to rise above the temporal to see and experience and believe the eternal. Look at what it says, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And then John gives us another parenthetical, he who is called the Christ, because John's already introduced him to us, Jesus, as the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So I want you to see what she's done here. Jesus says, I know that you're not with a husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. I perceive you are a prophet. Well, you know what? They say we worship on this one. They worship on that. Hey, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, I guess one day when the Messiah shows up, he'll set us straight and he'll tell us who's right. That's what she's saying there. And then Jesus says to her, verse 28, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Now, at this moment, I don't know exactly how this has transpired. I don't know the body language and the facial features, but here's what I picture at this moment. As she's walked through this, I see even like tears in her eyes, maybe tears of wanting to really believe this, but also tears of anger and frustration of being led on by another man to some kind of hope that her dreams are gonna be fulfilled and somehow she's gonna find it just to be disappointed again. And all of a sudden, when he says that, the spirit makes it real to her. And when he confesses who he is to her and reveals it, I see her doing this with, she's holding that water pot she's been holding the whole time. All of a sudden, she drops it and stutters back. And then the scriptures say, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And then notice the next part. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I mean, think about that for a moment. She drops that water jar and she leaves. That's a picture that John wants us to see. She came to that well because she was thirsty, because she needed it. The physical needed it. But all of a sudden, when God introduces to her the spiritual supernatural that this is God in front of you, the Messiah. All of a sudden, the Spirit allows her to understand the truth of this, to embrace it. She drops the water pot and leaves without ever getting any physical water. But yet what she goes back and tells people is, my soul has just been fed today. My thirst has just been quenched. Could this be the Messiah? The disciples show up at the same exact time. And they have some food for Jesus, but they're sitting there going, what in the world is he doing? He's talking to this woman, this woman, this, I mean, all, there's no good women that come out in the middle of the day to get water and he's talking to her and there's no other men around. Where is her husband? They're probably thinking through all of these things, right? And then you're going to see that conversation develop in a moment, but or, or next week. But here's one thing I want you to think about. Do you remember that Jesus stops here because he's super tired, right? He's like, oh, I cannot go on. I'm so weary. I'm tired. I just can't keep on in the journey. Here's what I find interesting about this passage. The disciples have traveled the same exact road, carried the same exact burden, slept the same amount of hours as Jesus has, we would assume. Somehow they're not tired. Here's what I think is so important for us to understand. The reason the disciples are not tired is because of this. They're motivated by fear. Jesus is motivated by the Spirit. They're scared to death of losing their life. They're scared to death of losing their reputation. They're scared to death of losing something in this situation. So instead, what happens is the adrenaline overrushes them and they don't realize they're tired and whatever we got to do to get out of this situation. And they just keep going. And what do we got to fix this problem? I got to go do this. We'll get that. We'll get this in him. And then all of a sudden we get out of here and we get out of Samaria. Then we can rest. How many of you are doing that right now in circumstances of your life? You're being motivated by fear. You're being motivated by the fact that you don't know how to handle the situation or that you could better handle it than God could. And so instead of spending time being very aware that you're hurting, that you're tired, 
and that you're weary. And maybe that's what God wants you to feel for that moment so that you will sit down and you will listen to him and let him pour these truths over your soul. Allow the spirit of God to reveal things. Instead, you get busy and you let that adrenaline flow until you get out of that circumstance. And once I get out of that circumstance, I'll look back and see what God was teaching me. But I'm not staying here long. I gotta get out of this situation. You're being motivated by fear. And the picture here is when we are in tune with the spirit of God, the safest place we can be is where God has brought us. If that's in Samaria, right outside of Sychar, that's fine. Because the spirit of God is the one who leads us into all wisdom, into all truth. When we are aware of the fact that we are tired and weary, you know what you should do? You should sit down and say, I'm tired, Lord, and I'm weary. Will you quench my thirst? Will you bring me your energy? Will you show me what you have for me in this weak state? Because your word says that when I am weak, you are strong. And it's amazing because you're going to see next week that this lady, not only does she leave behind and never get a drink of water, Jesus gets up and walks away from this place without ever eating any food. And he says to them, I have food you don't know about. And they're like, somebody went to Hardee's, got him something. I know, where did he get that from? They're still thinking physical, physical. He's trying to reveal to them, no, it's spiritual. You are spiritual first, physical second. And we only believe the opposite. We're physical first, spiritual second. God moments are happening all around us. I love this picture of verse 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, the people that have rejected her, the people that have hurt her, the people that she has broken relationships with, the people that will not let her walk with them to the well, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ. See, it's a beautiful picture because what unfolded in that conversation is Jesus was bringing her through these spiritual truths, but then it came to this moment of, do you really, really want that living water? Then you have to admit your sin. This living water, you're not going to be able to drink of it. It's not going to do you any good if you're hiding that part of you that's killing you. You need to bring it out. I'm not gonna condemn you. I'm gonna bring it out so that you can be healed from it. And in that conversation, however it unfolded, whatever the spirit revealed, what you find is this woman now, where she used to be embarrassed, now she's unashamed. Look what God did with my mess. God showed up at a well outside of Sychar with a woman who no one would ever thought God would have given her the time of day. And yet he came to her. Don't miss the picture, the contrast. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman in broad daylight. If there's nothing in scripture that should give you hope, that should give you a sense of God loves me. It's this picture of a woman who has destroyed her life. God comes looking for her and says, you don't have to say like that. You don't have to live in that condemnation. 
I want you to drink of some water that will fill you and it will become in you a spring of water. And you will no longer be dependent on what everybody else says about you or what you look like or how beautiful you are, or how not beautiful you are, or how successful you are, or how not successful you are. You won't pay attention to that. It's not the physical circle. All of a sudden now the spirit, you're in tune with the spirit and the spirit leads you and assures you whose you are and where your value and your meaning come from. Shame, embarrassment, and isolation turn into joy, confidence, and restored community. That's a picture of the gospel, my friends. And we're going to see what happens next week when the gospel comes to someone and then they go back and share. And that literally, that stream overflows to the people that she's around. Let's pray together. God, what a beautiful picture of your gospel. As that conversation develops, it just reminds us of all the excuses that we've offered. How do we know that this is real? How do we know the truth? If religious leaders can't figure it out. How in the world am I gonna figure it out? Because you've given us your spirit. And you have shown up in our darkest hour to redeem us. Light has invaded the darkness. I love the picture of this woman who runs back and says, come and see, come and see. Open our eyes, Lord, open our eyes to who you are. Open our eyes to the truth that can be ours. Lord, if there's anyone here today that is just bought into religiosity and is banking on being good enough or their good outweighing their bad, God, visit them today at their well that is so empty and never fills them. Lord, for the one who's just been running for that prodigal, Lord, it's been looking for meaning in relationships and in material possessions and success and trying to hear accolades from other people, Lord, may you rescue them today from that well. And may they learn to live for the audience of one who loves them just the way they are and will help them out of their situations Help them deal with the consequences of their sin and pay the penalty and debt of their sin so that they can experience eternal life. Lord, help us to understand the gospel isn't a game. It's life, it's death. Worshiping you, Lord, it's not a place, it's time. It's being aware every day, every moment that you could show up at any time. Lord, help us to have eyes to see you. We ask this in the powerful, sovereign name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.